You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. So let me ask you this. How many of you are parents? Oh, oh wow. Okay. Awesome. Uh, now, I will. So um, I don't know if you have a worst parenting moment. I think we all do. My, my children have a list. But I think I know what my worst parenting moment was. It was about 10 years ago. I was at Hollywood Studios uh, in Orlando, and um, I was with my family. Xander was about three, Mia was six, Livy was a baby, and we were, we had done all of our fast passes. Remember that? Remember when Disney was awesome? Before they became groomers and wanted to indoctrinate our children, they were just a park. Anyway, and uh, so, anyway, not just, I was just like, wow, you're really starting there, okay? Uh, it's like, so anyway, uh, I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Anyway, so the kids did, uh, so Mia was like, I'm just going to stay here with mom. And uh, Xander wanted to ride another ride. So I'm like, oh, let's go. We're going on the great movie ride. And, uh, you know, of all the, and Disney has made some good changes, but getting rid of the great movie ride has to be one of their worst. Their absolute worst was getting rid of Mr. Toad's wild ride at the Magic Kingdom. That was serious, man. That was so good. Um, now it's Winnie the Pooh, whatever. Um, but Mr. Toad's, man, that was where it was at. You get, if you don't remember this, they, Disneyland still has it because it's so awesome. You get in the, you get in the car with Mr. Toad and you, he's a crazy driver and you escape all these near collisions. And then at the very end of the ride, you get hit by a train and you go to hell. And then the, then the thing opens, it's like, enjoy your day at the Magic Kingdom. It is so crazy. I'm telling you, I want to set it up in the parking lot at Calvary. I'm going to scare the literal hell out of people and lead them to Jesus at the end of the ride. Disney's attorneys thought otherwise. Anyway, uh, but back to the great movie ride. Uh, we get on the ride, and it's great. And if you remember it, it it's such a fun ride. It, it takes you through all the different genres of the movie, so you go through the musicals, westerns, mobster films, and then, uh, and then I had this moment where like, oh no, I forgot about this part. And, and this is when, you know, it, it starts getting cold, and then they, they're like, they, their smoke shows up, and you enter the sci-fi realm. And, uh, and I'm telling you, I've been on this ride probably 75 times, and I totally forgot about this part, where the narrator says, you are with Sigourney Weaver aboard the spaceship Nostromo. Something has gone wrong. One of the crew has vanished. I don't even know why I have this memorized. And, uh, and then, but somewhere in the ship, a creature awaits to claim its next victim. And as it says that, if you remember the ride, the alien comes down from the ceiling. And my three-year-old son saw that and started screaming at the top of his lungs and looks at me like, what did you do? And the people around me heard my son screaming and looked at me saying, what did you do? And then the lady who was sitting next to me, she gave me this look of such disgust. She was like, you call that parenting? What else do you do? Buy your children beer and cigarettes? I mean, it was, 
Anyway, I got out of there. As I just held on to him, and uh, I just, I'm so sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. I apologize probably a thousand times. We got out of there because if I had remembered the alien, I never would have gone on that ride with him. And, and, and listen, I think this is what all of us in life are trying to do, right? We're trying to avoid all the dumb decisions that make life difficult, Every single one of us are trying to do that. And here's the thing. And now, if you're a Christian, there's, there's another thing that we're trying to do. And that is we're trying to discern in the situations that we're in, what does God want? What is God's will for me in this situation? And I'm telling you, um, after now about 25 years being a pastor, I got to tell you, this is probably the number one question that I've gotten in its various forms. Is, but it's, it's what does God want? What is God's will for my life? And the thing that we have to realize is that there is a process to discovering God's will. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has this really, it's a very famous passage, but he says this, and it's about the topic is God's will without us even realizing it. Look at what it says. At the, start at the bottom. I know it sounds weird, but we're going kind to of work our way from the end of the verse to the first. But he says that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What we do is what brings about the discovery of the will of God in our lives. The first thing he says is, don't be conformed to this world. That is, that there, the culture is telling us, this is what's right, this is what you should do. And Paul is saying, we can't be conformed. We can't let the culture remold us and reshape us. Instead, the way we combat that is what Paul says in the second half, which is, but instead we are transformed. We're not conformed. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. When our minds are renewed and we don't let the culture shape us, that's when we start discovering what God's will is and what God wants. The other thing that's important for us to talk about as, as kind of by way of introduction is that we do have a tendency to use the term God's will kind of loosely. When we talk about God's will, we're really talking about three specific things. We're talk and if you're a note taker, by the way, you're going to love this message. There's a whole bunch of fill-ins. And if you're not a note, well, you don't care. You don't take notes anyway. But, um, but if you like a lot of fill-ins, you're going to love this one. But uh, when we talk about God's will, we're talking about three specific things. The first one is this. We're talking about God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is the stuff that God does simply because he's God. And there's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of... Um, asking that's going to change it. There are certain things that God has decided and decreed, and that's it. Uh, and I'll give you a simple passage that has really powerful implications. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes that when it, the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Now, there's a few things being stated there, but this is really powerful. When the right time came, what constituted the right time? God decided when the right time was. Because, but listen, Jewish people throughout history had been praying for God to send the Messiah. In fact, there was a prayer that many Jews would pray daily. And yet God is saying, no, it was the right time. There was a certain time that he had decreed and decided that the Messiah would come. And it was according to his sovereign will and time frame. And there was nothing that was going to change it. There's God's, providential, uh, God's sovereign will, providential will. The second one is this, is God's moral will. God's moral will is all the stuff that the Bible talks about. This is the stuff, and this is going to sound funny, but this is the stuff you don't even have to pray about because God has already shared his thoughts on the subject. So if you got an extension on your taxes this year, you filed for extension because you're like, I need more time to think about whether I'm going to pay taxes or not. I'm, so <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you the bad news, but God has already talked to us on the subject. And that is, 
that you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and you give to God the things that are God's. Now, you may not like it. I think this is probably the least favorite verse in all the Bible and for, for good reason, but it's just what it is. It's just, that's the command and we don't have to pray, but God, I really want you to show me. Like, no, God's already told you. And now we just got to get obedient to it. But what, oh, and, and so you're like, you know, okay, what about that? What about something like sex before marriage, right? <laughs> room just got real quiet. Uh, God, you know, God has something to say. And here's what he says in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 13. He says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage, but God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, because I know people like to squirm about stuff like this, I added a second verse uh, so that people are like, whoa, what does that really mean? Here's what, here's what it means. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. You know what the, the God, uh, God's prescription is? Uh, for marriage, family, sex, romance, all that is one woman, one man, married for life. That's God's design. And, 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 and here's the thing. Anything other than that falls under the all of sexual sin. And he's saying, look, just stay away from it. Say, so, you know, and, anyway, all right, that's another sermon. We're going to move on. But, but you know what I think happens is, is that sometimes, here's what we do. Sometimes we will say, I know what God has already said, but what I'm hoping is that God will give me some kind of override or veto. What does that mean in the Greek, really? You know, that kind of stuff. You know, you, know, you can interpret the Bible anyway. You know, people say things all the time. You know, it's like, if you say so, um, some of the, most of this is pretty easy um, to, to understand. And, 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 and what we're asking for, listen, God will always speak in a way that is consistent with the Bible. And so if we will make a decision that we're going to spend time in the Bible, reading what God has already said, you know that most of our questions are going to be answered. But the question then comes up, what about the stuff that the Bible doesn't talk about? And are there things the Bible doesn't talk about? Sure. Should you buy a cell phone, right? There's no cell phone verse, right? Um, and so, but it's like, I have two job offers. I mean, which do I take? And, you know, and sometimes it's not super easy. Like, well, one is to go into ministry and the other is to join the mafia. I'm not really sure which to do. Uh, like, no, but what, a, but the, the question then becomes, what about the, the areas where the Bible doesn't speak directly? And this is the third area I want to discuss before we get into our text. And that is God's personal will. So we've said there's God has a sovereign will. He has a moral will. And then there's the personal will. Do you, these are the areas where we're praying that God will lead us that the Bible does not speak directly about. The problem is, is that we tend to run here without considering the other two. And here's the good news. If the more familiar you become with God's sovereign will, that is understanding how God works, and the more obedient you become to God's moral will, that is what God has already said, the easier it will be to know God's personal will. And the question then is, how does God reveal this personal will to us? And this is the question that I want to spend our time talking about, and we're going to look at as we watch very godly people wrestle with making a very important decision. And so we, we started a series last week that we're calling The Movement. The reason we call it The Movement is because we did a series through the Gospel of Matthew that was called The Story. And we said that if you learn his story, it'll change yours. But here's the thing that's amazing is that after the resurrection, the story became a movement. And the gospel started going forth into the entire world and lives, cities, communities, regions were transformed as thousands of people came to know Jesus. And so now, but in the beginning, they're wrestling with the question. And here's the question. It's a good one. And that is, 
How do we replace Judas? Remember, Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and now there's 11 apostles when there should be 12, and they're like, who do, how do we replace Judas, and who replaces Judas? And here's what I think is so important. We're going to see these guys do three things that I think is so important, and here's the thing that, I can, that you can be sure of. If you will do the three things that we're talking about, these three decisions that they make, that leads them to make the right decision ultimately in something that is very complex. It's gonna, ha- it's gonna have huge impact in your life as well because here's what you can be sure is true, is that every bad decision you've made has been because we violated one of these principles. And every good decision you've made, whether it was intuitively or because you knew what we're gonna talk about, listen, it's been because we've done the things that the apostles did here. So let's get started. And we're going to start in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Here's what we read. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to look at, as I mentioned, about discovering God's will. The first is this. If I'm looking to discover God's will, then I need to seek counsel from the right people. Seek counsel from the right people. I want you to notice And if you were with us last week, you know this, that there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascended to heaven. And then they walk back to Jerusalem, which the text tells us, verse 12 says, that it was a Sabbath day's journey, a Sabbath day's walk. And just by way of background, a Sabbath day's walk was about three quarters of a mile because the the Jews were very serious about making sure they didn't violate the Sabbath. So how far could you walk before it was a Sabbath violation. So they actually, these two rabbis, one tied a rope around the other and they had them walk until one bead of sweat appeared. And that was the marker. And it turned out to be, it was called, it's a thousand cubits, but we don't talk in cubits. Um, it was about three quarters of a mile before someone started sweating. By the way, if they had done this in Florida, a Sabbath walk would be three feet. So it's like, I walked out. All right, that's as far as you can walk. Anyway. So, <laughs> so they go to the upper room where they're staying, and I want you to see who's part of this conversation that they're going to have. Now, the, he hasn't asked the question yet. He starts asking the question in verse 15. But it's the 11 disciples of Jesus. It's some of the women who followed Jesus. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers who had become believers. And what is the activities that they're involved in? Verse 11 says two things. One, that they were in one accord. That is not the car they were driving. Um, That means that they were of the same purpose of mind, purpose of heart, and that they were in prayer together. So this should give you some idea as to who you want to talk to when you're looking to make decisions. So let's break this down a little deeper. Um, When I talk, we talk about who you should be looking to get counsel from. I mean, let's, but tell me more. I mean, I got to get it from the right people, but what constitutes the right people? There's three things that I want to talk about that to me is part of the composite that I'm looking for in a person that I want to seek advice from. Number one is this. You want to find people who are successful in what you need help with. 
They are successful in what you need help with. Now, this bears repeating. You probably know it, but you don't take financial advice from broke people. You don't get relationship advice from someone who's been divorced five times unless you're asking for a good lawyer. And so, but you don't get relationship advice from, from that. And so, now, here's what Solomon says. Solomon was the writer of Proverbs, which is a book all about wisdom in the Old Testament. And, and Solomon, who was the wisest person in the world up until this time, he said this, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now, I want you to understand what Solomon is saying here. He's saying that if you're, you've got to wage your own war. That is, there's difficulties and challenges you're going to face in your life, and you've got, to, you've got to wage it. But here's how you do it. You do it with wise counsel, because you're hoping that the wise counsel you're getting are from people who have waged their own war and hopefully been victorious. And if you get good counsel of people who have been victorious in their own war, you'll be victorious in your war. And that's why it says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And if you want to circle that word in the Hebrew, literally it means there is deliverance from it. Now, and this is why the areas that we need to be careful. Now, listen, guys, and this, I think for guys, especially, this is a struggle, is because if something breaks in your house and you have no idea how to fix it, you just call somebody. But you know what is the most dangerous man in the world? Is a man with a little bit of knowledge. Where he's like, oh, I think I saw something like this on TV once. Like, that guy will destroy his home trying to fix something. And he's like, eight trips to Home Depot later, the wall is missing, and you know, all I was trying to do was patch a hole. You know what I mean? And so, because, here's why, we have a tendency to leave God out of the areas where we feel like we are strong personally. And so we come to Jesus and we're like, oh, Jesus, I don't need you to deal with relationships. I know how to deal with that. Finances, oh, I've got that, I've got that covered. Career, no, 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 Lord, I've got this. <laughs> Tough conversations, I've never lost an argument. And so, and what happens is, is that we, we have this tendency to kind of push God away of the things where we personally feel like we're strong. And it takes humility for us to say, um, I, I may know things about this kind of in a secular kind of way, but I really don't know spiritually and as a Christian what it means to deal with some of these things. Now, I'll tell you this, uh, at least for me personally, I can't smell anything for the most part. I mean, my, my nose has only one purpose in life, and that is to hold up my glasses. That is the only thing that it can do. But I will tell you this, and I will tell you this, is that um, when I got COVID a couple of years ago, you know how people lose their sense of smell? Because I already didn't have a sense of smell. Um, I got a little bit of sense of smell, because that's weird. I think it was one of those moments in life where, you know, in math, there's like this weird thing where two negatives equals positive, which doesn't even make sense. I was telling my kids that. I'm like, first of all, that's what it is in math, but that is not how, I get, how it is in life, right? If you don't have $4 and then someone owes you, like you have to, you owe someone $4, you're down $8. It is not, you are no longer plus $4 because that's how math is and that's dumb, all right? Anyway, but that's a different sermon. However, so, but I started getting a little bit of sense of smell. It's that two, maybe it's two negatives equaling a positive, but, um, and it's horrible. I gotta be honest with you. It's terrible. The world stinks. <laughs> Everything I smell smells bad. And it's just like, I'm, I mean, like I walk into places, people smell bad. It, I don't know what's going on in the world, but I just want it to go back to the way it was. I was happy. I didn't need it. It's like, you, guys, you never smelled a flower? I lived my whole life with joy, never smelling a flower. 
Now I, I smell the guy holding the flower, and that's what's causing problems. Anyway, so, but that's not even what I was going to tell you. So when we were starting Calvary, and by the way, can I tell you this? That um, we started our church, we had our first Sunday service in September of 2000. And, uh, but when we started, it was actually Memorial Day weekend of uh, 2000 that we had our very first Bible study. And um, it was like a day ago or so that we had our very first Bible study. It was my wife and I and five people in a living room 23 years ago. And so my wife and I were kind of celebrating that the other day. Like, wow, can you believe how far we've come? Yeah, in, uh, in, in, in all those years. But anyway, we were this little Bible study of just a few people, but we were trying to find a place to start meeting on Sundays. And I, you know, and I went to kind of all the usual suspects, which was schools and whatever, all these places. And one day I was driving by, and I was out every day trying to find a place for us to start meeting on Sunday. And I, I found, as I was driving by, I, I went through this plaza, and I saw this kung fu studio. And I thought, maybe there's enough space, and maybe they don't do classes on, on Sunday. So I go in, and I talk to the sensei, and, he, um, and they had a podium, they had chairs, and I was saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking we're looking for a place to meet. He's like, oh, my church actually meets here, but we're moving. So if you guys want to meet here, you can. And then he had two classes in the back for other, you know, uh, classes or whatever. And I'm like, man, this is great. So I tell Kara, I'm like, Kara, I think we got an opportunity. A few days later, there's two guys that were helping me start the church. And so I take them and I'm like, guys, you got to check this place out. I, I mean, I, I looked at it. It's good to go. I just got, want you guys to see it and then we'll, we'll talk. Anyway, the sensei wasn't there. It was the next guy down. I don't understand. I don't know the, the, the hierarchy of the sensei world. He was maybe the vice sensei. I don't know. Uh, but I talked to the vice sensei, um, number two sensei, I, sensei junior. Anyway, second guy. So I, t- <laughs> I talked to him and I'm like, hey, we talked to the sensei. He's like, oh yeah, it's good. Just let us know when you want to start and whatever. So I show the guys everything. I'm like, man, we can do this. My favorite part of the whole thing was that one wall was a, the whole thing was a mirror. And I was telling the guys, I'm like, this is great because no matter what size our church is, we always look double the size. So people come in like, yeah, there's a lot of people coming here. And, and so anyway, and it may be only like 20 of us, but it looks like 40 of us. Anyway, so, and we walk out and two guys uh, say to me and uh, they're like, Pastor Bob, we can't, we can't meet here ever, ever. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This place is great. And they're like, no, this place stinks. And it stinks like armpit and feet in the worst way. And I'm like, I don't think, I didn't smell anything. And, uh, and, and I'm like, come on, but how bad could it be? We'll buy a Lysol can. And they're like, listen to me. You buy a WMD of Lysol. Like a Lysol dirty bomb won't fix what's going on in that room. And, uh, and, and so, and, and listen, and by the way, we didn't meet there um, because... I guess people don't want to go to a place that smells bad. And uh, so, but listen, you know what I'm so glad about? And I was ready to just make the decision. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to ask somebody else. And I am so glad that I did, or, you know, I don't think any of you guys would be here uh, because only people who didn't have a sense of smell would, 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 would be there. Or maybe the sensei and vice sensei, that's about it. And, uh, but listen, but it's, it's more than that. It's got to be more than just people who are successful in the place where you need help. The second thing that you want to look for is people, you want to find people who love God. 
As a Christian, you want someone to give you counsel who, sh- who shares the same worldview that you have and who wants to honor God in their decisions in the same way they're going to lead you to honor God in your decisions. The psalmist, David, would write in Psalm 37, the godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from his path. Listen, these people, the people you want counsel from have to be believers. They have to be believers because, listen, when there's someone who loves the Lord, here's what you can know. The Spirit of God can speak through them because they can give you wisdom because they're yielding themselves to the Spirit of God. And this is the thing that's so, that's so vital. So you want someone, hey, I want someone who's successful in the area I need help. I want someone who loves God. But here's the third thing, and there is a third thing, and that is you've got to find people who love you. And that's really important. That, that they care for you and want the best for you. That is that they are emotionally vested in the relationship. They want what's best for you. And listen, there are people who are successful in the area where you need help and love God and don't love you just because they don't know you. You don't have a relationship with them. And that's not to say that you can't get wisdom from them, but you just want to make sure that there's people that are, that are uh, ideally emotionally invested in the relationship. This is why you don't ask the salesman at the dealership, should I buy the car? Like, that's not the guy. He is not the person to talk to. Um, You know, you want counsel from people who possess all three, and that's what the disciples do. They get the right people together, and then they ask the question so that they can get the wisest answer. Look what happens starting in verse 15. He says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with with us and obtained part in this ministry. Now, This man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his place. Therefore, Of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. If you pause there and give me your attention, the second thing I want to tell you, and that is this, is that not only do I need to seek counsel from the right people, the second thing is I need to seek wisdom from the Bible. I want you to notice what Peter does. That is, he uses the Bible not just to get the decision, but also to frame the action. And that is, we need to replace the position that was left open by Judas when he betrayed Jesus and later killed himself. And by the way, just as an aside, there are people who see a problem with the two different accounts of Judas's death. Matthew has an account of Judas's death and does Luke here in Acts. Matthew records that uh, Judas hung himself. And then we read that... Um, Judas, uh, according to Luke, Luke, Judas fell headlong and then his entrails burst. And um, now you got to understand that, and you'll see this if you come to Israel with us. Remember, Israel, is, it's mountainous terrain. And so one of the things that you're going to find is, is that you have trees and vegetation growing just sometimes out of like the side of a mountain. And so 
it's, it, once you see the train, you'll realize, oh, I see what happened. He probably did hang himself. The branch broke, and then he ended up, because it wasn't a flat surface, he was going down a hill. And Luke, as the doctor, is the one that's giving us much more specific details. And he's like, look, he did, maybe he hung himself, but he got down to the end of that hill, and his insides became his outsides. And uh, that, was, that was the problem. So anyway, not a big deal, but just because people get excited about things. And so just to tell you that, Matthew records the beginning of how he took his own life and Luke records the end. But the situation is this, who will replace Judas? And the first thing that Peter does is talk about Judas's end uh, when he says, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it. That is from Psalm 69, verse 25. And the quotation is, explaining about what happened, that he betrayed Jesus, he got 30 pieces of silver, and then he gave the pieces back, and then the religious leaders couldn't put it in the treasury, so they bought this kind of worthless field, and they called it Akeldama, the field of blood, because it was purchased with blood money. Now, and if you were with us in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we dealt with that in Matthew 27 uh, in detail. But then he quotes from Psalm 109, which is a prayer about God removing an evil leader and replacing him with a godly one. And that's where he says, let another take his office. And, and here's the point, as I mentioned, they are using the Bible not just when it comes to the decision, but also what frames their actions. And the thing that you have to understand about the Bible is that the Bible is different than any book that you've ever picked up. Because the Bible is, is not just one book. It's one book altogether, but it's actually 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And the Bible has, it's different because it has the ability to do what no other book can do. That the Bible can change you because the author is the person who created you. Like, listen, lots of books can impact you or motivate you or entertain you, but no book can do what the Bible does, which is transform you from the inside out. And only the Bible can do that. Listen, I, and I'll tell you this, I did not grow up as a reader. Um, in, fa in fact, the only book I had ever read before becoming a Christian, which by the way, uh, tomorrow is 30 years ago I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, I'll tell you this, it is, yeah, thank you. I was three years old when I made that decision. And uh, <laughs> I was 19 when I made that decision, so do the math. I, I remember when Old Spice was still called Spice. And, um, and so anyway, but when I became a Christian at 19 years old, I had only ever read one book in my life and it was a biography on the life of Madonna. And now I know you never pegged me as a material girl, but yet here we are. And I remember, um, and I, I know I'm dating myself, but there used to be a bookstore in pretty much all malls. It was called Walden Books. And so you'd go into, I would go into Walden Books every month and I'd buy a guitar mag, like um, Guitar World or Guitar Player Magazine, whichever one had the songs that I liked that were transcribed, and so uh, it had like the sheet music. So um, I, was, I went in to buy one of them, Guitar World or Guitar Player, and then on the end cap, they had all these books, and they're like, you know, new, whatever, and it had this thing, and it said, unauthorized biography of Madonna, and I was like, man, I bet she's lived an interesting life. So I grabbed it, and, um, and I remember putting it on the counter, and it was $4.95, and with five twenty-five with tax. And I told the guy, you're charging five bucks for books? What a ripoff. <laughs> Are you kidding me? At the library, they're giving them away for free. And uh, not that I've ever been to a library, but once again, this is in theory. Anyway, so I bought it. it took me six months to read. And I was reading almost every day. And, uh, and it took me six months to get through. Anyway, the good news is, 
When you read the Bible, it's not just to entertain you. It's not just to motivate you. It can literally change you. And here's the thing that's so, so powerful. Uh, let, me, let me show you this passage up on the screen from 2 Timothy. And about a year ago, I did an entire message just on these two verses. So if you go back to um, a series we did in, in 1 and 2 Timothy, it'll be helpful. But here's what it says, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when it says that all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally that means it was God-breathed. And then it says that the Bible is profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine is a word that means teaching. That it's profitable to teach you. The question is, what is it going to teach you? Uh, it's profitable for reproof. You know what reproof means? It means that it can point out the error of our ways. It's also for correction. Correction in the Greek language is a word picture that mean, literally means to straighten out what's crooked. It's good for instruction and righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means, listen, this is so powerful. The Bible isn't just trying to give you a bunch of rules to follow so that you feel bad all the time. Instead, what God is trying to do through the pages of Scripture is spare you from pain so that you can live your life with joy. Because God's laws are never about limiting your joy. Instead, they're about maximizing joy by avoiding the things that are harmful to you. When you and I sit under verse-by-verse verse teaching, let's say this is the, what this verse means, this verse means kind of what we do at Calvary. We're going, not kind of, exactly what we do at Calvary. We're just going verse-by-verse verse through it. When you're reading the Bible and applying what's taught, we are learning the things that were wrong, and then we're learning how to remedy it. And I'm telling you, some of us, we start following Jesus, and you know what we realize? We're like, man, I was doing relationships all wrong. That's why all my relationships would implode. And then we, we start following Jesus and we had all these ideas about how money works. And then the Bible starts giving us some wisdom on that. You know what we do? Like, man, I have to rearrange that. It's all messed up. Some of us, we start following Jesus and we had this whole idea about how we should prioritize things in life. And, and then we start realizing, man, maybe that's why my family is suffering. I, I, gotta, I gotta rearrange things. And you know what happens? Listen, all of it, we start correcting it and the things that used to cause us pain now bring joy. And, and what it takes is, and this is, really, this is really the thing, what it takes is a humble heart to decide that what the Bible teaches is more reliable than how we feel and that then we're co uh, courageous enough to do it. Now, listen, if you're a parent, I know a lot of you are when I asked in the open, but uh, if you've ever taught your kids how to ride a bike, it follows a similar process. You show them what they need to do, and then you're holding the back of the seat and you're holding one, of the, one side of the handlebars and you're running alongside and, and they're like, hey, I get it, I get it. And then you let go or maybe you're just holding the seat for a little bit and then you let go and then they're riding. And you know what happens? Inevitably, they fall down. But that's part of the process of learning. And then, and I'm telling you, I, ha I came to this exact moment with all three of my kids and it was all three exactly the same way. And it didn't matter if it was one of my daughters or my son, it was the exact same way. And they all said at one point in time, just let me do it my way. And I would say, yeah, of course, you do it. I'll go inside and get the bandages. And, um, and they would do it their way and it didn't work out and there was pain involved. And then they would say, um, okay, dad, how was I supposed to do this again? I'm like, all right, let's get to work. And listen, this is what reproof and correction from the Bible does. It straightens out our path so that life gets amazing. But it takes humility. Listen, and I think that this is, 
it's such an important part of the conversation. It takes humility to decide that you aren't right about everything. And here's where this meets us. Listen, every single one of us have a past. And we've been picking up things along the course of our lives. You learn some stuff from your parents, and you learn some stuff from your friends, and you learn some stuff from your family, you learn some stuff uh, at school, and you learn some stuff from, you know, television and entertainment and all of that. And then you come to know Jesus, and you know what you're trying to do? You're trying to reconcile all of it together. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for is coming to know Jesus at a pretty early age, at 19, I was just starting college, and I wasn't really settled on a lot of things. And I became a Christian, and I started reading the Bible, and I just decided that whatever the Bible said about a topic, that's what I'm going with. And this is the thing that's really important. If we want our lives to change, and we want for God to really transform us, and if you want God to transform you quickly, let me tell you what happens. You've got to just, when you come to Jesus, you've got to just accept that what he's saying is the best possible way to live and not give a whole lot of weight to what you thought about the topic uh, over the years. And the more that you will say, I'm just agreeing with the thing that Jesus said, and that's what I'm going to lean into. I mean, it's like you are stepping on the accelerator, and you're going to get there faster, and the, the transformation will be easier. But the more that you buck against it, the more that you fight it, the more that you decide, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I have this thing that I've always thought. You know, my grandma taught me this thing, or whatever, you know, whatever it is. The more that we buck against it, it's like hitting the brakes. It's slowing down, and the more difficult the transformation is. Well, Look what happens and how the story ends in verse 23. It says, And they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, a dude with three names, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And that was not Chuck E. Cheese, by the way. Uh, you can extrapolate that. Uh, it says, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Last thing I want to tell you, and we're going to make our initial descent here, and that is, if I want to know God's will, I need to seek God in priority. Now, they proposed two people that have the qualifications, and the qualifications were in verses 21 and 22. And that is, Whoever it's going to be that's going to replace Judas has to have started from the beginning. That is from the baptism of John. So we don't want somebody that just showed up lately. It's got to be somebody who's been with us the whole time, who's been faithful the whole time, whose life that we know, and that he's still with us. He didn't bail out when other people bailed out. He's still here with us so that now he can be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And they prayed and everybody agreed that Matthias was the right man for the job. So the question then becomes, man, sometimes I feel like that's the decision I have to make. I've got these opportunities like these guys. They have two very godly men that have similar qualifications. I mean, how do you decide who's the right person? We've got to do the thing that Solomon challenged us to do in Proverbs, and it's a very famous verse. Sometimes it's very misunderstood, but it's, it's a verse that, or two verses that every Christian, I think, should have memorized. In Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says to trust the Lord with all your heart, Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. What does it mean to trust God with all of your heart? Trusting God means that you're giving weight, more weight to what God says than to how you feel. Not leaning on your own understanding is what we talked about before. That is not thinking that you're an expert. 
but instead saying, God, whatever you're saying, that's the right thing way more than what I, whatever expertise I have. And then we do what verse six says, which he says this, in all your ways, acknowledge him. What does that mean? How do you acknowledge God in all your ways? Um, let me explain it this way. The Hebrew word there, if you want to circle it in your notes, the Hebrew word for acknowledge is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A. It's used um, right about 900 times in the Old Testament, and it almost always is translated as to know. And we could also translate it, know him in all of your ways. Well, what does it mean to know him or acknowledge him? How do you know a person in all of your ways? How do you know God in all of your ways? When you were a kid, and I know every, every kid has this experience, and your friends say, hey, we're going to do this. Ask your parents if it's okay. And you already knew. When you were a kid, your parents asked you, and you already knew what your parents were going to say. So you answered on their behalf. I remember when I was a kid, my friends say, hey, you want to sleep over my house this weekend? I'd be like, nope. They're like, what, you don't want to? And I'm like, no, it's not that I don't want to. It's that my parents are Cuban, and they don't play like that. And, uh, and so let's not ask, or it, just by asking, it will become physically detrimental to my health. And uh, so I'm not going to do that. And you know what I was doing? I just knew them. And so I was acknowledging my mom in my decision. And listen, this is why when you spend time praying and you spend time reading the Bible, this is one of the reasons why it's so important. You are learning in these moments that you spend with God what his voice sounds like and how to obey him when you hear him. This is reason why Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Because as you watch how God has worked in the lives of other people, and by the way, that includes uh, the characters in the Bible as well, you learn what frequency God is speaking on, and you're able to recognize when it's him speaking in your life. And what happens at the end if I trust God with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding? I know God in all my ways. What happens? It says, then he will. This is the, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Then he will direct your path, or literally guide or make straight your paths. But please understand something, and this is very important. God isn't going to make your path straight for you to then decide you're not going to walk that road. He's not going to show you the path so that you then can take it under advisement, what God wants. No, God doesn't reveal his will for our consideration, contemplation, or just to give us information. He leads us and reveals his will for the purpose of our participation. And here's the other thing that's important. Sometimes we think it's only God's will if it's easy. And my friends, that's just not the case. He says he'll straighten our paths. He doesn't say that it's going to make our path effortless. Sometimes the thing that God wants you to do is extremely difficult. Sometimes the thing that God wants you to do is the thing that you don't want to do. And sometimes you're going to do the right thing and it's hard. And you don't understand why doing the right thing is difficult. And sometimes it is. And here's what I would encourage you to do is to be patient. Because you know what? If you've been around for a while, you've been living on this planet for a little bit, here's what you know. You know that you've been through a difficult season and you didn't know why. And then you got out of that season and you got past that season. And then after you got through it, you started to see it from a different perspective. And you're like, man, I would never want to go through that again. But now I understand why it happened. And now I understand what, what God did in me, what God did in my life, what God did in the people around me. And, and listen, it wasn't fun, but nothing else could have brought the result that happened in my life had I not gone through it. 
And that's the wisdom, yeah. Listen, that's the, that's, that's the thing that happens. And that's why I say you gotta be patient because one day you'll realize why it's all happening. You'll know that God knows what he's doing, that God isn't making a mistake. He knows what's best for you because you and I can't see the future. He can. He sees the end from the beginning. And every problem and heartache and difficulty, the delays, the thorns in the flesh, the physical stuff that we deal with and, and all the questions sometimes when we're just asking why, one day, in light of God's love, it's going to be made clear. And in the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, we lean not on our own understanding. We trust God and he will take us to places that we could never dream of. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise, that reality that you want to do good in our lives. And so we thank you for that, that you want to do good um, in us and you want to good, do good through us and you want to do good for us. And so, Lord, I pray, if we're in a difficult season, God, give us patience and endurance to help us know that, that you're at work. And we pray that we would be people who are listening for your voice and that we would be people who hear it and obey and that we would see our lives transformed because of it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.